You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. On this show, we share diverse perspectives from leaders in their industries, explore diversity, equity, and inclusion concepts, and challenge our own assumptions and perspectives to take diversity beyond the checkbox. I'm your host for the special series, our Ask a Series. I'm Jason Gillikin, the executive producer of the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast and CEO of EarFluence. And on the Ask a Series, we seek to initiate courageous conversations that remove barriers, stereotypes, and apprehension associated with asking difficult questions related to types of diversity. And today, our Ask a Series is Ask a Millennial and Ask a Baby Boomer, and I'm so excited to share it with you. And just a quick note, most questions asked in this series as a whole, in this show in particular, are researched as often asked questions and perspectives shared represent those of our guests and do not necessarily represent the viewpoints of the diversity movement, earfluence, or any other associate organizations or their employees or assigns. So before we get to Ask a Millennial and Ask a Baby Boomer, if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share on social media. And to see more diversity initiatives, including an online course on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and classes you can take to be a certified diversity executive or certified diversity professional, visit thediversitymovement.com. With that, let's jump right into the show. And our guests today are Millennial Candace Cooper and Baby Boomer Anson Dorrance. Candace Cooper is a sports media professional and former sports radio host whose resume includes positions with SB Nation, the Carolina Hurricanes, the New Orleans Saints, the New Orleans Pelicans. Candace was the first black woman to swim for the University of North Carolina. Anson Dorrance is the head coach of the women's soccer program at the University of North Carolina since 1979. He has one of the most successful coaching records in the history of athletics, including 22 national championships. Candace and Anson, welcome to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Jason. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about you two uh, before we dive into some of these questions. So, Candace, you have done a lot in your emerging career. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I thought I was going to go super far for school, and then I ended up going 30 minutes down the street. <laughs> and I spent my time swimming from 2009 to 2012 at Carolina, first black woman to swim at the university. And I only found that out after doing my senior thesis as an African-American studies major. And I just asked uh, Frank Comfort, the old swim coach, like, hey, has there ever been a black girl to swim? And then there it was. And so it's just been a very interesting journey for me, just being a black girl who swam and kind of trying to navigate that space and using that as my foothold into many doors. I trained for Olympic trials in 2016 and then retired looking for wherever I was going to go next and decided to take my talents into the radio world. So I started at the local show, the sports shop there. And then I spent some time in New Orleans working in operations and moved back, started to work at Duke and then took my talent stacked with the sports shop and then had my own podcast with ESPN Radio and ended up getting my first full-time gig at SB Nation. And Houston was fun for three months and then COVID decided to come a little early and take my opportunity away, but it's all good because I ended up finding work in the agency life. So I have been blessed to find work again and now I'll be hosting Guess the Guest Live with Pin Holderness come fall and also Locked On Tar Heels podcast with the Locked On Podcast Network. So I'm really excited to finally be shifting into some good news. <laughs> That's awesome, Candace. Thanks. Anson, besides being a Hall of Fame soccer coach, tell us a little bit more about Anson Dorrance. 
Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, first of all, Candace, you made a brilliant decision not to leave uh, the area. Um, it's so funny. Uh, all, all my kids, uh, with the exception of my eldest, all came to UNC, and I think they had plans to go elsewhere. Once they got there, it was like me. They found their home, and I'm sure you did. It's just an extraordinary university, so that was that was wonderful taste. And I had a circuitous route uh, to UNC, but uh, like you, uh, I came and absolutely loved it. I stumbled into my job. Uh, I had no intention to be a soccer coach. I was studying the law. Uh, my father was an oil businessman, and um, I had no interest really in coaching. But the guy that I played for at UNC, a, a wonderful man by the name of Dr. Marvin Allen, decided to retire, and he went in and spoke to the athletic director and suggested to my athletic director that uh, they hire me. I was hired so young, I was coaching boys that I had played with. Three years into coaching the men while I was finishing my law degree, they gave me uh, a women's team. And I still had no real interest in, you know, staying with the sports of coaching men and women at UNC, uh, but I fell in love with it. I had six courses to go and a, a degree, uh, and I dropped out. Uh, so uh, I haven't looked back, and I've loved every day of it. Uh, even now, I'm almost 70, and I'm really, really enjoying uh, everything about coaching. Obviously, the pandemic has put uh, this on hold a bit, uh, but I know we're going to get through this. Uh, I am just a overjoyed with this opportunity to coach at my alma mater. Thank you for that, Anson. But tell everybody where you grew up, because you didn't grow up in the United States. No, yeah, I was the son of an oil businessman, and we traveled every three years. I was born in Bombay, India. At the age of three, we moved to Calcutta, from there to Nairobi, Kenya, from there to Addis Ababa, where I met the woman I've married, uh, from there to Singapore, Malaysia. While my parents were living in Brussels, they sent me to a Swiss boarding school. And I came from that Swiss boarding school to the Marianist teaching order, the Catholic teaching order that ran that uh, boys boarding school in Freiburg, Switzerland, which was St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, just down the road from you, Candace and Houston. Spent only one semester there because I was almost killed every weekend. In order to live, I felt I had to transfer out. So I went to Chapel Hill back when I was there in the early 70s. Uh, San Antonio was the murder capital of the United States, and I really felt that one of those weekends, that was going to be another statistic, because St. Mary's isn't in the nicest part of San Antonio, and so I fled, and mm -hmm. so I haven't left. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so this podcast is Ask a Millennial and Ask a Baby Boomer, and just for context, millennials were born between 1981 and 1996. Baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. Me as the host, I am somewhere in, in the middle. I'm a Gen Xer. But there has been a, a perceived cultural rift between baby boomers and millennials over the past few years. Uh, the stereotype for baby boomers is that they are maybe out of touch, maybe low tech, maybe a little closed minded. The stereotype for millennials is that they are entitled, flighty, and selfish. Candace, let's start with you. Like, what do you think of these stereotypes? Well, you know, I hate stereotypes, but here they are. And <laughs> I've been taught my whole life that there's nothing new under the sun. So clearly, we've gotten all these energies from somewhere, right? They might be heightened now that we have more time on our hands to watch and have more things at our ready. But I certainly believe that there are people who in the past have been selfish and entitled and what have you, that they are now passing some of those characteristics off to the next generation. But, you know, it just comes with up and down of people being more vocal and outspoken. And I also think that summer boomers, I mean, we wouldn't be outspoken if we hadn't learned from someone, you know, in the past. And maybe we're doing it, tweaking it a little bit for good or bad, but definitely feel as though it's, it's been here before. <laughs>
All right. Anson, what do you think of those stereotypes? You've coached, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Zers, and you're a baby boomer yourself. So what do you think of those stereotypes, whether they're fair or not? Well, honestly, I think the low tech thing is spot on. Um, <laughs> it's a miracle. I'm actually on this podcast. I called uh, you and had you resend your uh, Zoom invite. Somewhere in the ether is the original one you sent me. If my life depended on finding it, I'd be dead now. So I think uh, the criticisms of my generation are absolutely legit. And basically the state of the uh, country right now, I, I blame my entire generation. And I've asked the millennials and all of you younger people to save us. Uh, we're ruining everything. Everything of every criticism uh, that they've given for my generation is completely legit. You know, we're destroying the planet. And the faster we leave the earth, the better for all of you. So I completely embrace every criticism. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Candace, what about you? Um, are there any stereotypes of millennials that you feel are on, on point? Oh yeah, I think that millennials are extremely entitled. We have a go through this whole achievement route, then somehow we're supposed to get a gold medal or trophy at the end of every prize. And unfortunately, that's just not how life works, especially as student former student athletes. We're used to, you know, you put in, you get out, and that's just how it goes, and you'll see results. And life has taught me not one more time than 10 more times that it just doesn't always work out like that. So I think that entitlement part is hard because you have to learn patience and you have to learn waiting for opportunities and waiting for, you know, that moment where you do get to see, reap some benefits of the hard work. You know, let's, let's say you start a, a new job and you have a, a boss who's a baby boomer. What do you expect from that boss versus if that boss were to be a, a, a millennial? I definitely expect low tech. Okay. <laughs> I expect to have to teach him a couple things, you know, a few tricks, a few shortcuts that probably took him 10, you know, hours to do, probably take me 15 minutes and just, hey, by oh. the way, this is how it goes. Like one, one, two little things, control, alt, delete, and there you go. It's done for the day. So I think having to be more patient just because they, some people do want to learn, but other people don't want to learn. And so you're going to have to be that, you know, voice for them. So I think that's it's extremely important to know that you're going to be doing 10 times more than you thought you were in the role because that person is probably tired and ready to move along. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Anson? What about the evolution of the athletes that you've coached from coaching your peers, basically? So from coaching the, the baby boomers to now coaching Gen Zers and all the way through from uh, Gen Xers and millennials as well. You know, what have you seen as the evolution of that and, and how have they been different? Well, what's really cool about working for an extraordinary university is we have access to all these uh, different uh, people that study these things. And so every five years, what happens is the athletic department will bring in the resident, you know, sociologist emeritus. So he'll come in and explain to us the generation we're just about to coach. And so I remember the millennial lecture from... Uh, the sociologist, because it was in uh, 2012. And he comes in, he's explaining the millennials to us. And, you know, I don't remember his entire presentation, but I'll never forget his first two slides. And the reason I remember his first slide is the date on the slide was the year I graduated from high school. So his first slide has popped up there on the, on the screen for his PowerPoint presentation. And it's got the date 1969. So this resonated with me immediately. And this is great. We're going back to my high school graduation year. Basically, this kid is coming home from school in 1969 and he has all Fs on his report card. The next picture is the parents screaming at the kid. Then it goes 
to 2012. And now this is the millennial. And a kid comes home from school and he or she has all Fs on the report card. And now the parents are screaming at the teacher. So basically what the uh, sociologist was trying to explain to us is it's not so much they're entitled, they're protected. They're protected from responsibility. They're protected from accountability. They've developed a narrative that protects them from pain. So if they screw up, it's someone else's fault. And their parents are part of this narrative that prevents them from accepting any responsibility. So uh, the challenge then, of course, when you're bringing them in is to try to accelerate them to adulthood. If a kid's on scholarship, they're playing for us for three and a half years. So we have three and a half years to teach them how to become adults. Now, part of becoming adults is taking responsibility uh, for everything, for your playing time, whether or not you win or lose, or every time you win or lose in practice, it's recorded. It's put up on a bulletin board. So in 28 different categories, all of our kids are ranked one to 30. It's a matter of, it's in the public domain. It's not like we secretly share it with them individually in a closed room. No, it's posted on a public bulletin board. And boy, are they an abject terror if I'm writing a book that year, because then the entire exposure is printed until the end of recorded time. And so now their accountability has become something that's terrifying. Uh, this is uh, what happens because we're at a university where they educate me on the challenge I have, have for each group. And honestly, Jason, I forgot what they told me about your group, uh, but somehow I managed because I haven't been fired yet. Uh, so basically the challenge, you know, every five or six or seven or 10 years is for me to adapt to my culture. Yeah. And, and Candace, the stereotype for millennials is lazy and that they're coddled. And yet you're a millennial. You're also a world-class swimmer. How did you do that? Like, how did you break through that particular stereotype, I guess? Um, I think that I just had a mother who was very hardworking and instilled, you know, the independence factor for me. She like, I always wanted to do things for myself and wanted to get that A on my own. I didn't want help. And so that's just something that was innate for me. But, you know, with swimming, swimming, again, is one of those, it's you against the clock. So all the work that you put in is going to show out when you do get, you know, your best time and what have you. So swimming for me really translated into life that was good and bad because, I thought, okay, I put in the work, where's the result? And then when the result didn't come, you know, easily, I was very discouraged. So I had to learn some self, you know, healing methods of trying to, you know, continue to push forward even when I got discouraged. So I do think that, you know, you have to learn a little bit on your own, but having the right support staff and the right um, village and someone like an Anson who teaches you things because they have experience is critical. Yeah. I'm curious about some of the events of your generation and how that shaped your perspectives. So Candace, can you talk about, so there's a couple that you can pick from. One, the terrorist attacks, or two, the recession. I remember September 11th, I was in sixth grade. I remember where I was. I remember my math teacher running in and saying the towers have coming down and I was just freaking out because nobody knew what was going on. We had the whole school on lockdown because we thought, you know, it was everywhere and being in North Carolina and having things happen in DC, we didn't know if further things with like Fort Bragg and other, you know, being a military type state, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so for us, it was just like, you know, you remember where you were when things happen and now with everything going on in recent weeks, recent months, we've just been kind of trying to take it in one day at a time. And we're, I think we're more of a feeling generation. So everything's based on our feelings and how we express ourselves and how we take things in and internalize. 
And so it's just been a unique experience for us to have Twitter and Instagram and be able to show protests and speak on things. If you see college athletes now, even though they're, you know, a different technically generation, it's just, it's proud for us to see them actually using their voice. Cause for a millennial, we probably wanted to speak up. I wish I could have told my coach just where to go and like my demands, stuff like that. But I would have never, you know, used that opportunity to do that. I would have been scared out of my mind. So I think it's unique to see now how that has still continued to progress. That's super interesting because you look at uh, the last dance, right? And Michael Jordan did not speak out for any political issues. And now it's taken LeBron James up until, you know, the last few years, right? For him to, to be able to speak out. And he's a millennial. Um, and I think he's probably been pushed more by the, the Gen Zers to, uh, to do something, you know, by the, the social media generation. Yeah, I, my senior thesis was the plight of the black athlete. And we talked about the Sonya Haynes Center and how there were protests going on. And I talked about people like George Lynch and Michael Jordan, those kind of guys. And I interviewed them just like, so what would you have done? You know, and they were like, well, back then your scholarship would have been taken away like that, right? So now when you have the opportunity to speak up and you feel like you have some comfort, I think it is kind of rewarding to see like their work and their doing their decision to do protests back then is still certainly effective today. Anson, what have you seen from your players over the years as far as their willingness their knowledge to, to speak up? I mean, for me, uh, uh, the three and a half years is uh, human development. And so even though, yes, I want these kids to you know, win gold medals and world championships, I want them all to sign pro contracts. And that's certainly a part of the reason these kids come to play at the University of North Carolina uh, and play for uh, our program. Uh, my main mission is character development. And so for me, it's about uh, the evolution of uh, a young woman that comes in basically as this person without a fully formed character. And by the time she graduates, we want her to have uh, strong opinions in all kinds of directions. We want them to be leaders like Candace. Uh, and just to protect Candace from the uh, millennial uh, PowerPoint I was describing earlier, the greatest thing about swimmers is they can't blame anything on anyone. I mean, you can't blame it on the water. I mean, you can't blame it on the weather. You can't blame it on anyone but yourself and your training habits. And so what's really cool about a swimmer actually is the clock uh, because your mother can't call up the coach and say, why isn't my daughter, you know, swimming before so-and-so? Because the coach is incredulous with that call because it's simple. Well, because, you know, I don't know whether your daughter's informed you of this, uh, Mrs. Cooper, but we have a stopwatch and, you know, when you, you know, and so uh, they have a completely different paradigm than we do in sports where your opinion will determine a lot of whether or not a kid gets on the field. And of course, they think it's your opinion, even though, of course, all of us that coach know that this person deserves to be on. Uh, but for the, the parents that are watching, it's not as clear cut. So to get back to the point I was trying to make earlier, yeah, for me, it's, it's human development. We want to take these kids to their potential. And so uh, my challenge is, is that I, I really do want to get them to adulthood as fast as I can. So let's get to, to politics a little bit. The last three presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, have all been baby boomers. Candace, let me ask you, would a millennial be a better president than a baby boomer? Taking away the exact candidates, who, who they are, you know, would a, would a millennial make for a better presidential, a better president? You know, I think that as much as I'm like, yes, lead, lead the charge for millennials because they'll get stuff done. I am a person who really takes heed to wisdom and someone who's been through something and someone who has, 
you know, a certain rapport about them because of experiential learning. So I think that while a millennial can lead in a certain respect, I think leading a country of people who are from such diverse backgrounds, such diverse age groups, I think it's difficult because you're trying, I think we as millennials try and please everyone all the time. We want to make sure everyone gets their point like, oh, you have this you know, policy that you want. Oh, you have this, you know, thing that you desire. And we're all trying to make sure everyone gets something. And I think there has to be some hard no's, no's and yeses that go along with that. So I think sometimes I'd rather have someone older where I can just talk junk about them <laughs> than have someone <laughs> where I'm like, I could do this better and I know I can't, but that's why I don't think you should be in here either. So I, I struggle with people my age because I still think as much as we think we know everything, like it does... Sometimes we have to acknowledge that people who are older than us are qualified and do know what they need to do to be in that position. What about you, Anson? You mentioned that uh, baby boomers don't know a lot of the tech and, and maybe, you know, haven't been up on as many of the, the changes that, you know, of the evolution um, that's been going on over the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so. Should baby boomers be president? Well, obviously, I think there's some that could be extraordinary. And tragically, the three names you gave me, only one became president. Uh, one might, uh, but the one that became president, I mean, to be completely honest, uh, um, he wasn't qualified to be in that position. And for all the reasons that uh, we could certainly spend, you know, the next 24 hours speaking about, he hasn't been a very good president. And to support the opinions I've had all along about what's going on in the world, if you look at countries that are run by women, like Germany and New Zealand, I could go on and on and on. Those countries have figured out ways to uh, handle this uh, coronavirus. Ours has not. And honestly, uh, even though I think there's some extraordinarily positive conservative principles that are out there, I genuinely feel that um, Trump doesn't have an understanding of how to corral this virus and how to lead us effectively through this. And obviously, there's a, a huge... Uh, uh, issue right now with black lives that do matter. And I think he's uh, making everything so tribal. Uh, he's, uh, you know, pitting one group against the other. And I think in every conceivable respect, he's making a hash of all this. And even though I do think we do have some wise people uh, that would be extraordinary presidents, I genuinely feel like uh, he hasn't done the job in the right way. And I even think that most Republicans, if they weren't all so afraid of him, well, would publicly come out and denounce uh, uh, his leadership because it hasn't been the sort of leader that we've needed during this kind of crisis. It uh, doesn't mean that all of his principles are, are off. I mean, I could certainly make an argument for small government, although I think I could also make a very good argument for big government. I could certainly parse the difference between an extraordinary leader that cares about the people in the country and one that doesn't. And unfortunately, I think he, he falls in that uh, uh, latter category. And I have nothing but huge respect for the women that are out there leading uh, their countries, because just look at the data. Uh, we have 4% of the world's population and 22 to 25% of the world's deaths. And that's an absolutely ridiculous statistic. And I would lay that at the feet of our leadership. It's not like that we don't have the science in this country, that we don't have the resources, uh, that we don't have the infrastructure. We have everything. What we're lacking is leadership at the top. And he takes no responsibility for it, which is tragic. And so uh, even though I do think we have some extraordinary leaders, unfortunately, we didn't elect them. And uh, honestly, uh, I am just appalled. And I think there are some millennials right now that will be doing a much better job in the position that Trump is in if, if they were in power. And I'm just, again, apologetic for the fact that uh, we haven't led the country, uh, at least in, the, in this presidency, 
the right way. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed. Yeah, and I just hope that millennials and Gen Zers vote. Um, just get out there and, and vote in November, right? Even if you don't agree, even if anything else, like I and Kamala Harris came out today as Joe's vice presidential nominee. I think that whether you love her or not, I just want you to vote. I don't even care who you vote for. I just want you to vote. I think you need to exercise your right. And I think that's sometimes what millennials don't understand is how important exercising their right is because they're just like, oh, well, I don't agree with certain things. Okay, I understand that. But come November. <laughs> to put your name on a ballot and check a box like I don't care what it is I just want you to exercise your right especially as a black person I just think we've come too far and people have done and sacrificed too much to not do that right like there are people who have literally died and I know you shouldn't have to go through that thing but if I have to make it so you feel that bad I will do that you know I want you to exercise that right so Candace what's one piece of advice that uh, you've gotten from a, a baby boomer that has you know truly shaped your life that's a great ask. I was thinking about the question when you sent it. And honestly, it's from my mom. She always says, God is going to bless you. And it's always at the time when I'm going through the hardest part of my life. And I'm always going through the toughest storm. And it's like, you know, you don't want to hear that. Like, I don't need to hear the positive part right now. Like, it, this, all of this, can we acknowledge that this sucks? <laughs> I was like, I understand, but God is going to bless you. You're going to see this, like, it's going to come out. And you're going to be so grateful that you went through this. And I'm like, I hear you, Sister Lou, but I don't feel that at the moment. So I think for her, it's just always reassuring me that it is going to be okay. And I, because she knows how wound up I can get. So it's just always those, you know, constant reassurance that you're going to get through it because eventually the rain stops, eventually the storm passes. And so it's just a matter of acknowledging, yes, that the storm is there, but not dwelling on it. Anton, are your, are your kids millennials? One of them's, uh, you do the math. One <laughs> of them's 40, one of them's 38. One of them's 29. Yeah, the 38 and 29-year-old are. The 40-year-old is technically not. So, Anson, for your millennial children, what's something that you've learned from them? Honestly, I love my kids. I just spent a Sunday over in Greensboro with my grandkids. My 38-year-old was turning 38 when we were over there celebrating it. She has a, a twin boys, you know, just a year old. And then she's got a rising sixth grader. And uh, what I absolutely love about her is how extraordinarily hardworking she is. She married a litigating attorney. They just bought a beautiful home in Greensboro. And I was just overwhelmed with um, the quality of their life and how they're raising their kids. Uh, I'm a member of a conservative faith. I'm a Mormon. Uh, so are they, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I love everything they're doing. So uh, what she always teaches me, and she could have taught my wife and I this a long time ago, She's extraordinarily organized. I live in chaos. I'm comfortable in it. Uh, my wife is comfortable in it. And for her, everything is just incredibly well organized. And so to be in her home, uh, to see everything you know, lined up, she would even line up the pencils on her desk. I mean, it's just incredible how well organized she is. Basically, what, what she taught me was the value of structure because I've never been structured. Now, the excuse I've given myself is my game isn't structured. You watch a soccer game, it's absolutely chaotic. You go to a swim meet, uh, Candace, of course, you're all in these lines. Uh, we're not. I mean, the, the soccer game is just oblivious to real form and structure. Uh, so I think she has taught us, uh, first of all, is uh, what you get from hard work and commitment and raising your kids the right way. And I love that. Let's wrap with some, some fun questions here. So uh, I'll start with Anson. What is your go-to social media app? All right. Now remind me what they are and I'll tell you which one I like. What are they? 
<laughs> well, you've got uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Okay, you have to go slowly. Uh, LinkedIn, I jumped off of. I was barraged. I can't keep up with my email. And then I've got to keep up with LinkedIn. Someone wants to connect. And all of a sudden, uh, it's like, you know, I took a Gallup or, uh, leadership organizational course like 30, 40 years ago. And they were saying, you know, basically three quarters of your phone calls are going to produce more work for you. So basically, don't even pick up your phone, ignore your phone. So email is also, you know, three quarters of your emails, you're doing someone else a favor. The same thing with LinkedIn. So I was on that for a while. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't keep up with all my LinkedIn connections. It was like a second email. And then, of course, not only am I trying to keep up with it, but I'm helping people get jobs. And all of a sudden, I was like an employment agency. Uh, so LinkedIn was for me to get everyone that connected with me on LinkedIn a better job. And I was thinking, I finally got off it. I was just, it was, I was overwhelmed. So, so that's the first one. All right, name the next one. Oh, there's Twitter. Twitter, I do fly through. I fly through it because, yeah, I get the news quickly. And so for me, I, I'm not on it very long. And, but basically, I do fly through it on occasion. It just keeps me more current. So I, I don't mind uh, a Twitter except when a, a president of a country uses it. That's the only time I have any objection to it. And then Facebook and Instagram? I'm not on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, my kids have to uh, show me how to find it. But once I find it, it's actually pretty good because uh, obviously the Instagram accounts I'm sent to are all self-promotional. And so, of course, everyone on our Instagram uh, account looks incredible. Everything they do is brilliant. They're having the time of their lives. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, there's this Instagram world that I only see on occasion, but holy cow, is everyone in a glorious mood and everyone looks incredible. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, my God, what a place to live. You know, I wish I could live in Instagram world. They've never made a mistake and they're all joyous. And yeah, so that's a wonderful world, but I don't visit that often because I just can't find it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Candace, what are your top three? Um, Instagram is my favorite because I enjoy pictures and I like to have sassy captions. And then Twitter is good, but I need to take breaks with everything, especially coming out this week. It's just everyone has an opinion and it's just annoying. It's like opinions are like buttholes. Everybody has one. But sometimes you could just keep that tweet. Like you can keep that tweet in the draft. You didn't have to like, you know, shoot that out. Because you see in the week after, there's always this notes apology from an athlete because he, you know, talked out of his tail. So it's just sometimes I think people need to send things before they, like send it to your friends before you drop that tweet in there. Candace, he got hacked. He got hacked <laughs> yeah exactly and then facebook is where i keep for like all my boomer family so they can keep up with what i'm doing oh there you go okay all right candace how often do you write a check i don't know the last time i've written a check but i did learn in fifth grade how to check do checks and balances yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah i don't i was listening to a podcast with a, a president of a bank the other day and i don't think checks are going to be a thing very long <laughs> i know how to cash a check and that's there you go <laughs> All right, so you both are in sports. Candace, who is the coolest person in sports that you ever met? Uh, Anson Dorrance would be number one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can I can check this off a bucket list that I have you know interviewed with someone of his caliber. So this is this is pretty cool for me. I'm just gonna say. But other than that, you know, obviously I met Antoine Jameson when I was actually working at Duke, and he was a Lakers. I don't know what they call them recruits, but he was helping 
with the team and he was lost and he, he didn't know that I knew who he was because he obviously was at Duke and he didn't know that I was a Carolina grad. And so I'm just looking at him in awe and he's just like talking to me regular, like it's just an everyday. And I was just like, I think, I know you know who you are, but like I'm over here having like a full fangirl moment. So we're just going to keep it, keep it pushing. But yeah, Antoine Jameson was pretty awesome. Amazing. Anson, uh, you've been in sports since 1975 at, at Carolina, something like that. Who's the coolest person in sports that you've met? Well, honestly, this guy shaped uh, my life in a very positive way because of the different things he did for me when I was a young coach. Uh, I would say Dean Smith. Dean Smith is one of the most classy, giving, extraordinary human beings I've ever met. Uh, he created a culture at, at UNC about caring for everyone. He would treat his lowliest manager with the same amount of respect and concern that he would treat Michael Jordan with. And he just taught me a lot about humanity. If you look at the success of the University of North Carolina, I think it begins with uh, basically the reason Dean Smith was hired. He was hired to replace uh, a basketball coach that was in trouble uh, with the NCAA. And he was admonished by a chancellor to basically uh, do things the right way. And he did things the right way uh, for so long and in such a competitive environment and influenced so many of us that the legacy he's left at UNC is a part of uh, uh, what I absolutely believe in. He made my profession respectable because honestly, back when I was young, I had no interest in coaching. And honestly, one of the reasons I had no interest, I didn't really think it was a legitimate profession. And uh, after, you know, watching him work while I was a law student and coaching at UNC, I was thinking, you know what? This man inspires me. Uh, he has made uh, what I'm doing worthwhile. And uh, the lessons I've learned from him, I'm carrying uh, on right now. And obviously, I'm here with Roy Williams, who also is a, a Dean Smith acolyte. And uh, he and I just believe in uh, the simplest things, just like treating people properly. And just like uh, Roy's recent uh, gesture of, contributing $600,000 to uh, make sure the spring sport athlete scholarships were covered when they came back. And not too many people know this, but every single year, Roy Williams writes, a, speaking of checks, <laughs> writes a check for my program, uh, uh, a significant check to my program. And he picks, you know, 10 or 12 other sports across UNC. And he makes all the difference. One year, I had a kid that was having knee issues that was trying to play professionally. And I used that money to have her go to a special doctor. And she was able to play professionally for five or six years because of the money that Roy Williams sent to my program. Uh, so uh, Dean Smith and his legacy through uh, me and all the coaches that admire him, uh, certainly Roy Williams, but that guy's had a huge impact on my life, but also the life of my university. That's amazing. Let's end on this. So, Candace, we'll start with you. What is one piece of advice that you would want to give to baby boomers? It could be about anything. It could be about the way you want to be treated in a job. It could be a way, a misperception. What's one piece that you would want to give to baby boomers? I would say check on your strong millennial employees. I think oftentimes we think these millennials are go-getters. They're always wanting to, you know, go to their next and they want to be always advancing and always wanting to learn more, but sometimes they just want to be able to talk 
and they want someone who wants to listen to them and be able to express their feelings because we live in a generation now where everyone, you know, always has to achieve, achieve, achieve. And if you're not, you know, at the top, then you're a nobody. So I think we do achieve great things, but at the same time, it's just like we need time to reflect and to, you know, be proud of our accolades. And we need to have someone who say, hey, you're doing a good thing. We need that support. And we won't vocalize it sometimes. Sometimes we'll just keep going and we'll keep internalizing because we're taught like, okay, don't have feelings. And, you know, you're an athlete or you're, you know, this performer, you have to be on all the time. So they need to have that space where they can say, hey, it's okay to like let that guard down and really just express yourself. Love it. Anson, what about you? What advice would you give to millennials? Honestly, uh, we just finished uh, sort of our book clubs with the uh, two books that I would, well, a book and a commencement address. And I mentioned the commencement address earlier. What I think would be really cool is if the millennials got into The Second Mountain by David Brooks, and then if they kept by their nightstand or on their nightstand, David Foster Wallace's commencement address, This is Water. And uh, the principal, I guess, ideas in The Second Mountain is about basically climbing two mountains. The first mountain is what uh, Candace was referring to, where you're basically, you've got to get a job, you've got to make some money, you've got to sort of climb the, uh, the, the sort of ladder to keep yourself alive, to keep your family alive. And so the first mountain is certainly something that you have to address, but it's the second mountain that's going to bring you the most joy. The first mountain is a climb to happiness because when you're successful on the first mountain, you are happy and you've, you're, you've got some material things and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But true happiness comes by climbing the second mountain. And the second mountain is giving back. It's caring for uh, your family. It's caring for your community. It's basically giving back. And uh, that's where uh, all of us should live as fast as we can. Uh, yes, we got to climb a little bit of that first mountain. Otherwise, we're going to starve to death. But eventually, let's get to that second mountain quickly. And then if everyone would just read David Foster Wallace's This is Water. And even the beginning is so millennial-like. He talks about these two young fish are swimming along, and all of a sudden they run into these two older fish. And the older fish look at the younger fish and say, how's the water? And the two young fish are looking at each other and are thinking, uh, what's water? And, of course, the whole story is about awareness. Because when you're really young, you're not really aware of what's critical. Because in the transformation... Uh, between when you're a high school kid and when you graduate from college is you're making the uh, transition from the world revolves around me to I want to serve the world. And the faster you can make that transition from I am the center of the universe to I am a part of the universe in a very small part and I want to leave this place a better place, uh, the faster you can get there, the more effective you're going to be. And I think that's the challenge for the millennial is to realize uh, – you're a tiny cog and you can make a difference, but let's face it, nothing uh, is rotating around you. And if you think uh, things are, uh, boy, do you have a lot to learn sort of thing. And so I'd recommend uh, that commencement address. You can read it in less than you know 20 minutes and then read uh, David Brooks's The Second Mountain. And basically that's a spiritual journey. And obviously, anyone that's spiritual, stay there, because, boy, we're becoming all secularists. And I don't think that's good for humanity. I don't think it's good for any of us. And I think uh, uh, we should be opening up 
uh, that very critical conduit uh, to a better life. Wow. Awesome. Well, Anson and Candace, I really appreciate your time today. Candace, take a, a minute to talk about um, what you have going on with Guest the Guest. Yeah, so coming up September 15th, I will be with Penn Holderness, and he is going to be guessing which ACC legend is behind the curtain. And I'm really excited because we have some really good guests who are top tier. <laughs> they are in the banners, in the rafters, in their respective universities, and they're going to be coming on and sharing what they did at their time at school and then what they are doing now. And a lot of what they're doing now is that social good. A lot of what Anson is talking about, they are on that happiness mountain trying to provide to the universe and do some social good. So we are excited to talk about the good old days and then, you know, how we're helping to serve the community now. That's amazing. And that starts September 15th. Anson, you've got a, a podcast coming out. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I'm so excited about it. And obviously, Jason, you're a, a very important part of this. We are creating a podcast from uh, the second book I wrote, The Vision of a Champion. And honestly, I hadn't read that book in forever. It is so much better than I remembered. We're attaching all these extraordinary uh, uh, personalities to each chapter. You know, certainly people that everyone would know, like Mia Hamm uh, and Christine Lilly and some of the all-time greats, but even some of the modern greats like Lucy Bronze, who's one of the greatest uh, players in the world right now, who plays for England, who played for me, Tobin Heath, two-time world champion. Uh, so we've got all these amazing people on that are explaining their soccer journeys. Crystal Dunn, who is considered, you know, one of the most versatile players in the world and also a reigning world champion. And so, uh, and I'm having a good time with them because I'm reminiscing with them about their experiences at UNC, but also uh, giving everyone that listens uh, that has any interest in the game, either fan, coach, or player, some insights into the game itself, and, and we're having a good time. So, uh, uh, Jason, thanks for letting me shill that, because I can't wait for uh, you guys to put that thing out there. And I think we're, uh, I guess, four recordings away from finishing everything. So thank you for uh, your grind with me. Uh, and uh, Candace, just let me share with you how much I've enjoyed being on this podcast for you. And Frank and I go back to the beginning. So your swimming coach and I are two very old men. And we're both of us, by the way, are willing to turn the world over to you. Because let me say again, we've made a mess of it. So would you please save us? So yeah, um, we're relying on you guys. So uh, Candace, absolute pleasure. Congratulations on all your success and good luck to you in the future. Thank you very much. Again, I made no mistake. This is very much a big interview for me. And I appreciate your time. And I've learned, I've learned more. I wish I could have taken notes at the same time. But I will certainly look at this recording and take some of the gems that you left today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed that, and we hope it made you think a little bit, too. Thanks again to Anson Dorrance and Candace Cooper. The new show that Candace mentioned, Guess the Guest, you can find at guesstheguest.live. And Anson's podcast coming up, you can find more information at ansondorrancesoccer.com. And for more information on all diversity and inclusion initiatives that we're working on, head on over to thediversitymovement.com. And as a reminder, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review as well. I'm Jason Gillikin, and we'll see you next time on the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. <laughs>